You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A dot com. And thanks for listening. It's good to see all of you here this afternoon. My name's Eric Bonkowski, and I am one of the pastors here at City Church. You know, when I was uh, young and in seminary, I had this uh, fantasy that when I became a pastor, I would preach these messages that would solve once and for all the haunting existential questions that we all carry around. You know, questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? And uh, this fantasy was fairly developed. I mean, I, I imagined the way that these messages would then be gathered together like pearls on a string and packaged, uh, you know, put on tapes and CDs. This was the late 90s. Um, and packaged so that the the masses of Christians could learn and benefit from the insights that I came up with in my messages. Now, having been a pastor for about 20 years, I realize that when we read the Bible, we seldom do that in a vacuum where we sort of have the privilege of seeking tidy answers to these deep theoretical questions that we're reading the Bible on the run. It's kind of this battle for survival. You know, we're we're reading the Bible much more often with uh, kind of a foggy mind and tear-filled eyes the night after or the day after we've gotten that bad diagnosis or the night that our spouse has left the house, or the day after our kid has screamed at us, I hate you. And, and I realized that that context changes how we read the Bible, right? Uh, as I said before, we don't come to it just with these theoretical questions of philosophy or of theology. We don't turn to the Bible and say, man, I really need to understand a definition of providence or sovereignty or theodicy today. We come to the Bible wondering, how can I believe for one more day? How can I hang on to this faith that feels so tenuous? And I was thinking about all of that this week as I prepared this message about Joseph and the end of Joseph's life. You know, today I'm going to preach the final sermon here at City Church in the book of Genesis. Seven years later. And, you know, it'd be tempting in some ways to wrap this all up with a nice bow and say, well, here in Genesis chapter 50, we have the dreamer's guide to a fruitful life of faith. Here here are Joseph's tips for understanding the theology of providence. But instead, I think what we find at the end of Genesis is what we found throughout this book of Genesis. Real and honest stories that help us today believe for one more day. 
to struggle with faith. Faith in a good God in the midst of a bad, bad world. And so that's my hope today as we turn to the end of Genesis, the end of Joseph's narrative, and read the way that Moses wraps things up here. So I'm going to read now Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 26. And I ask that you follow along, either in a Bible, if you have brought one today, or these words are also printed in the worship guide, and you can read there as well. Here's what God's word says to us. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father, Jacob, was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please, forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir and the son of Manasseh were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. And bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would now guide us to understand this, your Word. Not just to understand it intellectually, but to understand it in our hearts, understand it emotionally and spiritually, and use these words to strengthen our faith. We come to you today saying we believe, but help us in our unbelief. We ask that you would do this for our good and for the glory of of your name. Amen. The title that we've used for this final series through the book of Genesis is, But God Meant It for Good. And it's taken from this passage, verse 20 in chapter 50 of Genesis. But God meant it for good. I think it's a fitting summary of the life of Joseph. It applies to uh, every moment of Joseph's life, not just the end here as he's blessing his brothers and as he's preparing for his own death. It applies to Joseph when his father, Jacob, played favorites and stirred up family discord, but God meant it for good. It applies to Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery and reported back to their father that 
he was dead, but God meant it for good. It applies to the life of Joseph when he languished in a prison in Egypt, but God meant it for good. You see, it's a summary of this long life of ups and downs that Joseph went through. But I want you to see it today not only as a summary of Joseph's life, but actually, in fact, a summary of the entire book of Genesis. It's a summary that equally applies back to uh, Jacob, the trickster, who uh, caused so many difficulties in his own life and for his sons after him. But God meant it for good. It applies too to Joseph's grandfather, Isaac, who as an old and dying man blessed the wrong son as he was deceived by Jacob and passed Esau by. But God meant it for good. It applies too to Abraham, old Abraham, filled with all of his doubts and hesitations and yet clinging to faith. God meant it for good. It goes back even further than that too, doesn't it? Even to the story of Noah and the unfaithfulness of God's people then. It goes back and it covers even the lives of Adam and Eve when they took that fruit from the tree that was forbidden to them. But God meant it for good. It's a summary that covers the entire book of Genesis. The path of God's faithfulness despite the unfaithfulness of humanity. Here's the other way you need to understand this phrase because as Genesis is complete, it's not just looking back at what happened in Genesis, it's also looking forward. And this phrase, this summary, this statement of faith will also apply to Israel as they are slaves in Egypt. For the next 400 years, they will be under the hand of the Pharaoh, but God meant it for good. And then they will be led out by Moses, as you may know, but they will wander through the wilderness for 40 years. And it's at that point where Genesis was written. It was for those wandering Israelites. And they read this final uh, passage and they remind themselves, but God meant it for good. You see how important this phrase is. It's a summary of the book of Genesis. It's a summary of the life of Israel. And if we have eyes to see, isn't it also a summary of our lives? But God meant it for good. As we struggle to believe, as we struggle to hold fast to the promise, in the midst of all the, the things that are happening in our lives, but God meant it for good. Now, I realize that this phrase that I've now repeated a number of times already this afternoon, for some of you, it's met with a certain degree of skepticism, isn't it? As I don't know, Eric, that sounds awful easy. It sounds awful cheap to say from up front on a Sunday afternoon. And I think that there is a way that this phrase can be offered cheaply, and I'm not saying it that way today. And what we're going to see in Joseph's own life out of this passage is the ways that this was a hard, a hard won statement of, Jesus, of Joseph's faith. It wasn't cheap or easy or dismissive. You know, there's a way of hearing, but God meant it for good, that can sound awfully similar to uh, everything happens for a reason. That re reflexive, uh, saccharine statement that, that doesn't really touch on the depths of what we're feeling. 
I don't say it that way. You know, Kate Bowler is a writer and she has this, uh, I think the titles of her books are fantastic. She has a book that's called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies That I've Been Told. That's how you might feel when I say, but God meant it for good. Oh yeah, and other lies I've been told. It makes me think of some friends of mine who suffered a terrible tragedy, right? And, and, and someone, I'm sure that we were well-meaning, they, they uh, gave them one of those little wooden signs that you find like at Pier 1 Imports or something you're supposed to decorate your house with. And a- after they suffered this tragedy, the sign said, Good morning, this is God. I'll be handling all your problems today. The wrong message at the wrong time. It felt cheap and easy. I don't intend that to be the message of God meant it for good. But in order to understand how you're to receive this message, we need to see how it worked in Joseph's life. And here's the first thing. That Joseph says this to his brothers, looking to the past. Joseph says, but God meant it for good, looking to the past. He says it, first of all, in the past tense, right? He doesn't say God means this for good. Joseph is reflecting 40 years later on the evil that his brothers had inflicted upon him. It's also uh, worth noting, it's not just that he says it in the past, but note who says it. It's Joseph himself talking about his own life. And this is important. It's not someone else. It's not like one of the advisors to Job, one of his counselors, who came with his bad advice in the midst of all that Job was suffering. It's Joseph himself. It's not like those well-meaning friends who, who sometimes say a careless word that strikes you in the absolute wrong way because they haven't entered into your pain. It's not like that. When said in the present tense, well, I'm sure God means this for good. And let me tell you how he means this for good. That's the lie that stings. But when it's been born of Joseph looking into history, the past 40 years, and how God has been at work in his life, then it takes a depth of meaning. Then it carries a statement of faith. Joseph doesn't say this from the pit where his brothers threw him. He says it near the end of his life. Why? Well, a couple of things. First, he says it having acknowledged the reality of evil that he suffered in his life. Do you notice? That's where this passage starts. Look again, if you will, at verse 15. The brothers are conspiring together and they say, well, Joseph will hate us now that Jacob's dead and he'll pay us back for the evil that we did him. They name it as evil. They go on as they approach uh, Joseph in verse 17, they say the same thing. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin. So this statement, but God meant it for good, acknowledges the reality of evil. It doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't paint over it. True trust in God's providence never lies about the reality of evil. It never says, oh, it's not that bad. True trust in God's providence names the reality of suffering, yours and that of others. 
Here's the third thing that, that allows Joseph to say this as he is looking to the past. It comes out of Joseph looking to the old, old promise of God. His life over the last 40 years, as he's suffered ups and downs, as his brothers have turned against him, it has been shaped by this enduring promise of God. How do we know that? Well, it's in what, uh, what Joseph says. He says in verse 20, first, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And then it's important what he says after that, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And then verse 21, so do not fear, I will provide for you. And embedded in what Joseph says right there are three key elements to the Abrahamic promise, to the fundamental of promise of God to be with his people Israel. He says many people, numerous people, think back to the promise to Abraham. He says your people will be as numerous as the stars in the heaven, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Numerous people. Joseph is echoing the promise. He says, I will, uh, he says, do not fear. That's central to the Abrahamic promise. Again and again, we've seen as we've read through this book, do not fear, I am with you. Do not fear, I am with you. I know life is scary. I know terrible things are happening. Do not fear. And finally, he says, I will provide. And that is the core of the Abrahamic promise. That is the core of God's promise to his people. I will provide for you. I know your eyes are filled with tears. I know you can't see past the present. I will provide. Joseph is rooted in the old, old, enduring promise of God. He's looking to the past, and that allows him to say, but God meant it for good. But God meant it for good. Here's the, here's the point of all of this. Joseph, through his life, has been trained and shaped by this promise. Remember who Joseph is. Son of Jacob, grandson of Isaac, great-grandson of Abraham. And think of all the family gatherings. Think of the meals. Think of the nights around the fire pit. When his family gathered, and he sat at the knee of his great-grandfather or his grandfather, and they told stories about the promise of God, the times where God showed up again and again and again. Joseph was a man shaped by looking to the past, and it's what allowed him to hold fast in faith. But God meant it for good. We too, you and me, can likewise be people who look to the past and are strengthened in our faith by looking to the past. How do we do that? Well, number one, by reading the Bible. We read passages like this that bolster our faith. And number two, by all these great confessions of faith that we have, of the saints who've gone before us, who've, who've struggled through life just like you and me, and then they wrote down these confessions to help themselves and to help us. And so regularly in our worship services, we, we read and we quote these and we say them aloud to one another and they're so essential, aren't they? Like in the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, which says, which asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but that I belong in body and soul, both in life and death, to my Savior Jesus Christ looking to the past, 
holding fast, but God meant it for good. Or Heidelberg Catechism 26, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty? I believe that I trust him so much that I do not doubt that he will provide, hear that word? He will provide whatever I need for body and soul. And he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. It names the reality of evil, whatever adversity, in this sad world, but he will turn it to good. God meant it for good. The first way we do this, the first lesson we learn from Joseph is that he says it looking to the past, but it doesn't end there. The second step is that he says it looking also to the future. And this is in that last paragraph. He says in verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. Do you, do you uh, hear the change in tense there? But God will visit you. He's looking to the future. He repeats the same thing again. He makes them swear. He says, God will surely visit you. He underlines it. He, he highlights it. It's so important to him. God will visit you. He's looking to the future. That's what allows him to say, God meant this for good. Now, what is Joseph talking about there? He's talking specifically about the Exodus, which is still 400 years in the future. But God will visit Israel. He will not forget them. You know, what's also fascinating about Scripture is that it picks up this language later, many years, thousands of years after the Exodus itself. We turn to Luke, the first chapter, and here in the stories and the prophecies about Jesus' birth, this same language reoccurs. It says that God will visit us from on high. It says that the dawn or the sunrise will visit us. Day spring from on high, we sing that song. Day spring will visit us. It's talking about Jesus. God will visit his people and he does that climactically fully in Jesus Christ. And Joseph is looking at the future and in faint outline, just in a shadow, he is seeing Jesus. You see, the good that Joseph's able to talk about in Genesis 50, God meant it for good. It's only provisional at that point. Yes, he was delivered from the pit. Yes, he rose into power in Pharaoh's court. Yes, he provided for his brothers in the midst of a famine. But he was still going to die. Bad things were still going to happen to the people of Israel. So he had to look further into the future. He had to look until he could see the future coming of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, you and I, likewise, can say, along with Joseph, God meant it for good, but only as we look to the future. Only as we look to the future. The future that we know is true in Christ Jesus. I want you to imagine for a minute the disciples. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples or the sandals of the disciples of Jesus. That Friday afternoon as they stared him on the cross. But God meant it for good? What kind of questions would have been running through their minds that afternoon? You see, they had to have faith that looked into the future. 
in order for it to be good, they had to look uh, past those three interminable days when Jesus was in the tomb until that great day when he rose from the tomb, when he was resurrected, and suddenly the light went off and they said, but God meant it for good. Or put yourself, and it shouldn't be too hard, in the shoes of a weary Christian today. Someone like you or me, someone with a terrible diagnosis, someone whose heart is broken, someone who is watching the world uh, gripped by war and rumors of war. God meant it for good? How can we say that with a straight face in a way that isn't cheap or too easy? Only by looking to the future. Yes, we believe that God meant it for good. But it's a good that won't be revealed until the last day when Christ returns. It simply won't. If you're looking for good now in this world, you will not see it in a way that satisfies. The Christian hope has always been, always will be, a hope in the return of Jesus, our Savior. I know that many of you were sold a bill of goods when you first heard the gospel. You were told, follow Jesus and everything's going to be great. Everything is taken care of. Your sins are forgiven. But then life started happening, didn't it? You started getting sick and your heart got broken and you kept sinning. You see, our hope is in the future. Paul says this. 1 Corinthians, he says, if we... Hope in this life alone, we of all people are most to be pitied. Our hope is in the world to come. Our eyes of faith must see to the future when Christ returns. Same as it was for Joseph. But God meant it for good only makes sense when we are looking to the future of what God has promised to do. So Joseph says this looking to the past He says it looking to the future. And third, Joseph says it looking through tears. You know, I had to bring this up, right? I've already pointed it out as we've looked at the life of Joseph. Joseph is a crier. And here at the very end of Genesis, we see it one more time. It's it's underlined, it's circled. Because uh, Moses wants us to understand that this is central to his character. It's central to the act of authentic faith. And I don't necessarily mean literal tears, although they are for Joseph. It's more a posture of the heart. It's an emotional awareness of the soul. Joseph says, but God meant it for good through tears. It says in verse 17, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. It's Joseph's tears that keep this phrase from being cheap, aren't they? But God meant it for good. Why is Joseph crying? Well, he's weeping in sorrow because his brothers totally missed it. Right? Jacob dies and his brothers think, well, now uh, Joseph's going to want to kill us. He's going to want to pay us back. All that we have in this world is karma. We get what we gave. They have totally missed the grace that has been active in Joseph's life. And he weeps in sorrow at their loss, at their emptiness. 
He weeps that they miss the good that he has done to them. Do you not see it provided for you and your little ones? He, he weeps that they miss the good that God has done in him. How Joseph has been transformed from this kind of uppity favorite son into a steward who blesses all the lands. But I think Joseph is also weeping in this moment, not just in sorrow, but in joy. He's weeping in joy because of the future that he has glimpsed. He is weeping in joy at the promise that he has seen in outline form from his God who has made it clear to him in the dreams that he's been given and the favor that God will have for his people. So what I'm offering then is that Joseph's tears in many ways are symbols of his faith, of his hard one faith that has looked to the sad past but is also looking to future joy so he looks through tears you know who else is a crier yes me that's been clearly established jesus jesus is a crier at the tomb of lazarus his best friend Why was he crying there? Oh, he's grieving the reality of sin and death in this sad world. And he was crying tears of joy because he knew the resurrection was coming. I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus cried over Jerusalem for similar reasons. This city that had gone off the rails, but also in his mind he wept because he knew of the new Jerusalem that was coming. And Jesus also wept as he went to the cross, didn't he? There in the garden of Gethsemane, he pleaded with God. He said, God, surely there's another way. Take this cup of wrath. Wrath because of sin in this sad world. Take it away from me. And yet, not my will, but your will be done. Why? Because with the eyes of faith, Jesus saw beyond the cross. He saw beyond the grave. He saw to the resurrection. But God means this for good. And friends, I think we too, like Joseph, like Jesus, can say God meant it for good by looking through tears, whether they're literal tears or figurative tears. You know, as we've been preaching these final sermons on the book of Genesis, I've been reading another book alongside. It's a book by a woman named Tish Warren called Prayer in the Night. came out a year or so ago. I'm a little slow on the uptake. It's fantastic. And one of the things that is so spectacular in this book is when Warren points out that sometimes the tears of sadness are indistinguishable from the tears of joy. And she talks about an example in the Old Testament where that's the case. Some are crying out in sadness, others are crying out in joy, and you can't tell the difference. And I think if you're honest with yourself, there's sometimes where your tears are the same way. You can't draw a line between them. Because you're, you're weeping at the sadness of life and the sadness of this world, but you're also weeping because you're filled with the hope of what God has promised. That's what Joseph models for us. 
I want to end by reading a little bit from uh, Tish Warren's book. She's imagining here uh, the scene in Revelation. Revelation 20 at the very end of the Bible. And uh, it's the scene that's uh, pretty familiar. We quote it fairly often. It's that moment when God will wipe away every tear from our eye. Where there'll be no crying, no more pain, no more mourning. It's glorious, right? It's an accurate picture of our hope. But she puts this great spin on it. She says this, all things will be set right. But wait, not until we have one last long cry. Redemption itself does not skip over the darkness, but demands that every last tear run. What if we can stand before God someday and hear our life stories told for the first time accurately and in their entirety with all the twists and turns and meaning we couldn't follow when we lived through them? What if the story includes all the darkness of suffering, all the wounds we've received and given to others, all the horror of capital D death, and we get to weep one last time with God himself? I think what she's talking about there is a fitting summary of the life of Joseph. Looking to the past and all that we've suffered, all that we've been through, Not cheap, not easy, naming the reality of sin, but holding fast to the promise of God and looking to the future that is assured of deliverance through Jesus Christ, of healing, of hope, of victory, of life that miraculously comes out of death. And an ability to say in that moment, maybe for the first time, with a straight face, but God meant it for good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this rich narrative in Genesis, the story of the patriarchs and the example of their faith. We pray that we would continue to learn and grow more as we see the ways that they struggled with your promise and yet still clung to you in faith. And as we cling to you in faith today, may we remember that you are clinging to us, that you have pledged yourself to us, that you've given all we need through Jesus Christ, your Son. And help us to walk each day looking to the past, looking to the future, and looking through our tears. Knowing that you are with us and that you will never leave us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.